Word, so if you would, bring out your Bible with me, and let's go to the Lord in prayer as we look to it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us the Word of God. Pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Lord, we pray that you would take the words of Scripture and press them upon our hearts. May we believe in them. May you change us by them. We know that your word is truth, so we ask that you would sanctify us by them this morning. We pray that you would use your scripture to equip us for every good work. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning in our study of God's word, we come once again to the topic of eschatology. That is the study of future things. Now, at the mere mention of the term eschatology, I know that there are different responses elicited in you. My general sense is that when we come to the topic of future things, or when we come to the topic of eschatology, there's really two main reactions. For some of you, you get really excited. You sort of sit up in your chair, you're sharpening your pencil, perhaps you're already starting to dig out that secret pack of colored pens, and you're getting ready to use them, and... If that's you, I just want to say that I, I, I'm like that too. I love to study eschatology. But uh, there's also a second response that's elicited in some of you. And that response would just be at the mere mention of the term eschatology. You're probably already shutting down. You're, you're, you're tuning me out. And you've already be prejudged this message as not being that helpful for you or over your head. So you're less than excited about the section of Second Thessalonians that we're heading into now. But... It has been my experience that the topic of eschatology can be a bit of a polarizing topic for a church. There's those who love the topic, and there are those who could really care less for it. And at times, it seems there can even be a level of disdain from many towards the topic, even a, maybe a snobbery towards the topic at times. And I say, well, why is that? Why are, there, why are there people responding to this topic this way? And I think there are different reasons that people come to avoid the topic of eschatology. I think for some, it's just a subject that's too complex. There's just too much going on. Portions of scripture like the, the book of Daniel or the, the book of Revelation. I mean, these are compu- complicated, and I myself am intimidated by them. So there's definitely a, a level of difficulty or a difficulty to entry into the subject of eschatology. It takes serious study and hard work to wrap your arms around. For some, maybe they're afraid of studying eschatology because they're afraid it'll turn them into a a weirdo of some kind. Uh, They they are fearful of becoming that guy who talks about uh, end times events uh, constantly, ad nauseum, bringing up the rapture and other things and drawing end times charts on their bedroom walls and things like that. (laughs) We know they're out there. So some people just don't want to be like that, so we avoid the topic. For others... They just think there's no practical value in studying eschatology, so we tend to avoid it. They don't think it's worthy of their time. For others, they may have experienced a tendency for discussions around the topic of future things to be rather divisive. I know of one man who regularly responds to the first mention of anything eschatological with this. He says, oh, you you mean that topic where the more you know about it, the more you're likely to divide your church over, he says kind of cynically, like this will lead to a church split if you really study it. And for these reasons and others, many would rather not talk about eschatology at all. And I can acknowledge that the subject is complex. And in the study of eschatology, future things, there are many texts of scripture that we must try to get our arms around. 
And yes, some people can get a little overly excited about this subject to the neglect of other subjects and other biblical responsibilities. And to the point that they even, and there's some that are very committed to these views, to the point that they might even leave a church over it. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing at times. But I think it's important for, under, for us to understand what the Bible has to say about the future. And so if you're here this morning and you're someone who's on the spectrum of having really an ambivalence towards this subject or maybe even a, a disdain for the topic of eschatology, then I want to give you five reasons, just as we start out, five reasons for why you should care about eschatology. So here is the first, five reasons for why you need to lend yourself to thinking about what the future and what the Bible says about the future. And the first is the Apostle Paul's example. In First and Second Thessalonians, the books we've really been studying, Paul taught that young church eschatology. When he was just there with them for a few months, he taught them extensively about future things. So Paul taught young, new Christians about the future. So that's one reason in itself, the, Paul's example. Another example is that all scripture is inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. So all scripture would definitely include eschatology in the, sub, in the, the passages that relate to eschatology. We must study them. They're inspired by God. They're profitable for us. I think about generally we might say about one-fourth of the scripture is in some way related to the future. So that's a large part of our Bibles just to leave out if we're not going to focus on future things. So third, another reason, is one's personal understanding of the future will have significant ramifications on their worldview. That is just how they look at life. Our understanding of future things will affect the way we live today. For example, if we believe, like one eschatological position, that it's our responsibility to build Christ's kingdom so that Jesus will then come back, then that's going to affect how we live today. So it's important to affect our worldview. Number four, a fourth reason. According to the writers of the New Testament, our understanding of the future will impact our sanctification today. For example, we find in Romans 9, 10, and 11, very eschatological portion of the book of Romans, that this all culminates, those chapters culminate in doxology or in worship. Thinking about future things led Paul to worship. In 1 Thessalonians 4, eschatology produces a comfort in the church. In passages like 2 Peter 3, 14, a proper understanding of eschatology is used to motivate our holiness. So it affects our sanctification today. Our view of the future affects our sanctification today. And finally, I'll say, the scriptures say that there is a blessing in studying and knowing what the scripture says about the future. The book of Revelation, which I think by everyone's standard is the most future-oriented book in our whole Bibles, in the entire canon of scripture, begins and ends with a blessing upon those who read and understand this book. Revelation 1.3, let me read it to you. It says this, Blessed is he who reads and those who hears the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. 
That's the beginning of the book of Revelation. And here's the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 22.7. And behold, I'm coming quickly, says Jesus. Blessed is he who heeds the words of this prophecy contained in this book. So a double blessing, bookending the book of Revelation for those who would read and study a book that's focused on future things. So for all of these reasons, if you have a tendency to really eschew the topic of eschatology, then I believe God is asking you to really reconsider that thought, uh, to challenge that view in your heart and say, I need to care about these things. You should be asking yourself, why am I so reluctant to study what God's word has revealed about the future. Because like any other portion of God's word, God should, will use it to equip us for every good work. And it's my desire for you that you would be excited about studying this topic just like every other topic in scripture. And if you're already excited, just well, praise the Lord. That's great. Um, get out those colored pens, because here we go. Just go ahead then and open up with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is where we've been studying, and this morning we come to the second chapter. And look with me. This morning I'm going to read verses, two, verses 1 through 12 of this second chapter. Please follow along with me in your own copy of God's Word this morning. The Apostle Paul writes, Now we request, we request you, brethren, with the regard to the coming of our Lord our Lord Jesus Christ, and the gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who, is, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains him will do so until he's taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed for whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one who is coming in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved." For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order, that they, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. See, at this point in Paul's letter, Paul has sort of worked through his introductory material. In that opening chapter, his primary goal was to encourage the church in Thessalonica. They were living in a community that was hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they were facing persecution for their faith. They were really then 
also just confused about their own spiritual state, their own salvation. They were questioning if they were truly saved in light of the persecution that was around them, and also because of a false belief, belief that had been brought in to the church. And because of this, they had lost confidence in who they, were, who they were in Christ. But Paul, for himself, he was convinced that they were true. And he commended them for their love for one another and their rapid growth in the faith and also their faithful endurance of suffering. But as we come into the second chapter, Paul takes really direct aim at the theological confusion that was strangling this church. This congregation full of relatively new Christians had been scandalized by a false teaching on the topic of future things. And so to correct this crisis, the Apostle Paul really spills a lot of ink in chapter 2 with the goal of correcting where they had been led astray. And his goal ultimately was again to give them some pastoral comfort. He wanted to return them to a place of comfort in Christ. So he does not give them a detailed explanation of all things related to the future, but just enough to dispel the lies that have been spread among them. So Paul here is writing as a pastor to shepherd their hearts through eschatological confusion. And his goal is to bring clear instruction for the sake of encouragement. Now, as we look at verse 1 in particular, it's really no mystery what the topic is here. Uh, Look at how the Apostle Paul begins chapter 2 again. Look at that verse with me. Verse 1, he says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So here's Paul's topic. You see, he mentions two future events, the coming of the Lord and our gathering together to him. And as we try to understand what Paul wrote in this passage, we would do well to seek to understand exactly what was the problem going on in Thessalonica. What was their confusion? So that's how I'd like us to approach this passage this morning, trying to understand what was the crisis that had occurred there? What was the problem in their minds? And primarily this morning, I'm just going to focus on verses 1 and 2, and I'd really like to focus our efforts on just understanding the theological crisis that happened in their midst, what they were le- how they were led astray. I want us to gather as many details as possible from the text so that we can understand the issue and then be able to understand this passage. If we understand this, the, the crisis rightly, that'll help us guide our way through this passage. So just in terms of an outline this morning, I'm just focusing on the crisis, the crisis in Thessalonica, this theological confusion that had been brought in. And so here it is, the crisis. As we seek to understand what's happening on the ground in Thessalonica, we need to first consider these two events that Paul begins the chapter with. Paul writes, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think identifying this poses a great challenge for us. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ refers to the return of Christ. It's his second coming. If we jump ahead to verse 8 in chapter 2, we see that when Christ returns, or at the appearance of his coming, the text says, the lawless one will be slayed by the breath of Christ's mouth. And if we look back into chapter 1, 
The coming of Christ is described as a time when Christ will bring judgment upon those who refuse to believe the gospel. So look back into chapter 1 at verse 6 with me. Follow along in verse 6. For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give, and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Again, this referencing to his coming this, all these terms refer to Christ's coming, his second coming in judgment, when he comes dealing out retribution to those who do not believe. So this is again in chapter 2, verse 1, when we see again this phraseology of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know it's referring to these things. Now as we think about what Paul was referring to here, we have to remember that Paul has already shared with them a lot about future things. We're sort of jumping into the middle of their conversation. Paul had taught them when he was in their presence, and then he wrote them two letters on the topic. We've seen 1 Thessalonians, and now we're in 2 Thessalonians. So in a sense, we're coming in late to the middle of a conversation. And just like today, when you walk into a conversation late, it can be a little bit disoriented. Well, so it can be for us if we're not tracking with all that Paul has revealed earlier. So it's, it's good for us to remember that Paul has already shared with them much about the future. And so as I alluded to earlier, when Paul and Silas initially planted this church in Thessalonica, he spent several months teaching them, and Paul immediately began teaching them about the future. He taught them future things. We see this in, in verse 5 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, look, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? When I was there in your midst, I was teaching you these things. So we know that he taught them when he was there in Thessalonica about these topics. And so it'd be also good to us to go back and check what he said about future things back in 1 Thessalonians. So in your Bible, back up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, just to remind ourselves of what he said there. And as we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, the subject is that of the rapture. In fact, from verse 17 is where we get the term rapture. In verse 17, the Greek verb harpazo is used, which is translated caught up in our English versions. In the Latin, that phrase refers, is called rapturo, or that's how it's rendered. That's where we get our term rapture. So that's the subject here. But look back at verse 13 with me of chapter 4. He said, Paul writes this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. So the concern here in writing this church about this topic was that some in their midst had begun to die. Brothers and sisters in Christ had passed away, and they were fearful that those who had died had missed out on the coming of the Lord. Paul, Paul, they were worried that they would miss out, and so Paul needed to write to correct them. Look how he continues in verse 14. 
For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now pay attention to verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. So Paul informs this church of how future things will proceed. When Christ is comes, here's the order of how it happened. The Lord will first descend from heaven. Then there'll be this earth-rattling threefold noise, a shout from heaven, a voice of an archangel, and then the trumpet blast of God. And then the, I think just the world then will be shocked out of its slumber. The whole world, Christ comes in a magnificent way. And then... Dead believers, those who have died in Christ, will be resurrected. Their bodies will be resurrected. Brothers and sisters in Christ, whom we have laid in the grave, will be amazingly woken from their rest, bodily resurrected. And then we, along with these resurrected saints, will be snatched up or caught up, raptured into the air to meet Christ in the clouds. The entire church then, the universal church, will be gathered in the Lord in a great assembly in the sky. And at this point, the bride of Christ will finally be with her groom together in person. And they will be with him forevermore, the text says. They will always be with the Lord. And we'd say this is gloriously true. And this is so clear in 1 Thessalonians 4 that all faithful Bible-believing Christians agree about this. And we all agree about this. It's so clear in the text. Of course, this will happen. Uh, the controversy goes, well, where do we go next? That's where we start to divide. But we definitely will all be raptured up into the air. It's so clear here. But let me draw your attention back to verse 15. And note the, the phrase in the middle of this verse. I'll read from the beginning again. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. You note that, until the coming of the Lord. So here, in context, Paul is unquestionably using this phrase, the coming of the Lord, to refer to the rapture. Until the coming of the Lord. This is, again, the same phrase that we find in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Some believers will remain until the coming of the Lord. Some people, some Christians will be alive at the time of the rapture, still living, believing, and at that coming of the Lord is when they'll be brought up. And the point that I want you to catch here is that Paul uses this phrase, the coming of the Lord, to refer to the rapture. And so if we turn back to 2 Thessalonians, as we've already seen, Paul uses this phrase, same phrase, to refer to Christ's return in judgment also. In chapter 1, it's Christ, when Christ comes, unbelievers will be judged. In chapter 2, the man of lawlessness is judged at the appearance of Christ. So my point is this. In 2 Thessalonians 2.1, when Paul says, Now with regard to the coming of Christ, 
Paul is referring to a multifaceted return of Christ. It's an event that includes the rapture, as described in 1 Thessalonians 4, and it also includes the second coming of Christ to come in judgment. The second coming of Christ is a multifaceted term. And we'll see in a moment that it also includes the term the day of the Lord, which is found in verse 2. More on that in a moment. So just again, in other words, this phrase, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, is a broad phrase to refer to a broad time period. If we bring in evidence from other passages, we'd say, well, I think it's a seven-year period, a seven-year coming of Christ. So that's the first term, the coming of Christ, broad term. The second term is much more specific. It's the event that Paul refers to as our gathering together to him. That's the second event. I think we've already read enough to know exactly what this second term is referring to. Paul is writing to a church, and he says, our gathering together to him, to Christ. The church is gathering together to Christ. It's also interesting to note the word that Paul uses here. It's a form of the word from which we get our word synagogue. In the Greek, it's sunagon. It means literally gathering, assembling. But interestingly here, this word, in like no other place in all of Scripture, it has a, it has a prefix attached to it. It's epi-sunagon, epi-sunago. And sometimes in the Greek language, a prefix will be attached upon a word to intensify the word. So I think it would be right in this case if we would refer to this as the great gathering, the gathering. Paul writes again, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our great gathering together to him. We say, what is this referring to, that second event? Well, we know it's the rapture. It's what Paul wrote about in 1 Thessalonians 4. And I would just say there's really not a lot of disagreement about this. In majority, most people agree that this second event is referring to 1 Thessalonians 4. And there's very little disagreement here. So this means that in 2 Thessalonians 2.1, Paul uses a broad term to refer to the coming of Christ, and then a more specific term, our great gathering together to him to refer to the rapture. Now at this moment... I would just like to pause for a minute, and I just would like to maybe give you a brief refresher on the four main eschatological views about how the future will unfold. And it's really just like a 10,000-foot view of future things, and hopefully this is a reminder for you, but if not, I hope it'll be simple enough that we can all follow along. And I give you this refresher so that you can have a greater appreciation for the unique contribution of this passage of Scripture that we're studying today. So four views, broad views, describing future events and how the future will unfold. There are four are this, amillennialism, postmillennialism, historic premillennialism, and dispensational premillennialism. As you can tell, all of these views relate to the millennium which is the thousand-year future reign of Christ, which is referred to in Revelation chapter 20 six times. Now, within each of these views, there's, there's different per- perspectives, of course, so I'm, I'm usually I'm painting with a broad brush here this morning, but here's the four main views, broad characterization of each view. The first is amillennialism. You can remember it by this ah at the front, negating the millennium. Amillennialism, that means there, there is no millennium. 
The thousand years is, is fully spiritualized. We're living in it now. It's, it's, a, it's, it's been a spiritualized amillennialism. Christ will simply return and usher in the new heavens and new earth. That's what we look for. Christ comes back. It's all over. Simple. Amillennialism. The next one is postmillennialism, which really I have to say is on the rise today significantly. More and more people in our country seem to be glomming to this view Christ, and in this view, Christ will not return until the millennium is over. It's a post-millennial return of Christ. Christ will return after the millennium. And this is really the most optimistic view, which teaches the world will become increasingly Christianized until the return of Christ. It's an optimistic view. Christ returns post-millennium. So that's post-millennialism. Now a third view, historic premillennialism. Christ returns prior to the millennium, pre-millennium, prior to the millennium, Christ returns. And this is what the vast majority of early church fathers believed, and that's why it's called historic premillennialism. Not all, not all church fathers, but some early ones, I'll say. Now, all three of these views hold something in common that's very important for us to catch this morning. All three of these views believe that the rapture will occur at the end of the tribulation period. Now, if you were to ask someone from each of these camps, what is the tribulation period? They might give you different answers, but they all agree that Christ returns and the church is raptured after the tribulation period. They're they're post-tribulational views. Now, there is a fourth view, as I mentioned, and this is the view that I'm convinced of, and theologically, this is the position of our church. It's been referred to as dispensational pre-millennialism. The term pre-millennialism will let you know that this view ascribes to a pre-millennial return of Christ. Christ will return before the millennium. In fact, we believe that Christ must return before the millennium because Christ will literally reign on the earth for the millennium. So we must come back before. But this fourth view, which again is the view that we hold to, also believes that Christ will rapture the church before the tribulation. In other words, we're not going to go through the tribulation. In fact, another term for dispensational premillennialism is pre-tribulational premillennialism. And so in short, we believe that Christ will return and rapture the church to meet the Lord in the air, and then Christ will escort the church back to heaven to be with God in heaven for a seven-year period. And in that seven-year period on the earth, God pours out judgment upon the inhabitants of the earth. God brings forth the tribulation on the earth. That is pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism. Now, I have left out some minor views like the pre-wrath view and the mid-trib view, but those are smaller things. I think we can set those aside for our time now. But I want to point out here this morning that the timing of the rapture in relation to the tribulation divides all the views into two camps. Proponents of amillennialism, postmillennialism, and historic premillennialism all ascribe to a post-tribulational rapture, which means these three views all teach that the church will go through the tribulation. In other words, in all three of these views, when 1 Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 4 occurs in real time, and the church is raptured up in the air. It will be after the tribulation period. And from that point in the air, we'll be raised up in the air, and according to those views, we'll then come straight back down to the earth. 
That's, that's those views. We, we're raptured up, we all agree on that, and then we come back down to the earth. It's a post-tribulational rapture. And in dispensational premillennialism, we alone believe that the rapture occurs prior to the tribulation so that we can be raptured up and then taken back to heaven to be with the Lord for a seven-year time period. I say all that to make the point, in our theological system, we believe strongly that the rapture will occur prior to the tribulation period. And the church, then, you and I will not have to go through the tribulation period. Now, with all that just as context in the back of your mind, let's return to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and really this crisis in Thessalonica. Paul wanted to talk to them about the coming return of Christ, broad term, and again, the great gathering together to Christ, a more narrow term referring to the rapture. And piecing together verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, Now we request you, brethren, that you do not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed. What is clear here is that the church in Thessalonica had been quickly shaken from their composure. Literally, their, their minds were unsettled. This term here used commits a, a, a rocking motion. It's used elsewhere of earthquakes moving buildings. They were also disturbed. They, they were troubled and alarmed. And we should be naturally asking, what were they so unsettled and so disturbed about? Uh, they weren't disturbed before. Well, wh what happened to them? What did they believe? They had quickly moved from a place of clarity and certainty about the future, and then quickly, the text says, they slipped into a disturbed state of confusion. So what went on? Well, Paul further explains the source of their troubles. Look again at verse 2. Paul writes, Now we request of you, brethren, that you do not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So according to Paul's words here, there were three possible sources of their confusion. A spirit, a message, or a letter. One of those three things. A spirit, he says, most likely refers to a prophetic utterance. A prophetic utterance of some kind. A prophetic word from the Lord. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, Paul used the word spirit in relation to the word prophecy. So this was a prophetic word given to the church, or at least a supposed one. Next, Paul says, a message, or, or literally a word. I think this refers to spoken teaching of the non-prophetic kind, just a, a teaching in the church. And finally, a third source of error could have been from a letter or an epistle. And Paul adds the phrase, as if from us which I believe that phrase should be connected to all three of those previous sources. So it seems that someone in Thessalonica was claiming Paul's apostolic authority to teach them falsehood of some kind. And this might have looked like someone saying, well, look, the Spirit has revealed to me what Paul really meant in his teaching about the future. Or, Paul, or something like this, Paul must have meant this about the future because I heard a private word from him about this. I know that this is what he meant. Or perhaps it was, I received a private letter from Paul in which he told me about the future, and this is the way it is. So through one of these means, someone in Thessalonica was claiming Paul's apostolic authority to teach heirs about the future. And furthermore, we know that what they were teaching was a lie. It was blatantly false. 
And we know this because of what it says in verse, in, in verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you. You see that? Let, in, let no one in any way deceive you. So there was a false report, a lie that had come in. So what was this false report? What was the content of the air that was spread either by some prophetic word or perhaps through a, a spoken teaching or a letter as if from Paul? Well, look again at verse 2. He says this, Now we request of you, brethren, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or to be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if it, from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The false report here made the deceptive claim, made the lie that the day of the Lord had come. So what we must ask then, what is the day of the Lord? Well, it's a concept found all over our Bibles, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It refers to God's outbreaking of wrath upon the earth. It's a day belonging to the Lord in which he will render justice upon the earth. It's a day that will catch the world utterly off guard. It's a day of reckoning. It's God's day to make judgments. And Paul wrote about this back in 1 Thessalonians, back up again to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where Paul teaches extensively about the day of the Lord. Look at chapter 5, verse 1 with me. Paul writes, Now as to times and epochs, brethren, we have no need to write anything or anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So we'd say the day of the Lord is a day of destruction destined for an unbelieving world. Another scriptural term used for the day of the Lord is the tribulation period. I believe they're synonymous. The tribulation is the day of the Lord. A time of incredible judgment unlike anything that the world has ever seen. And it will come upon them suddenly. And if you recall back to when we walked through this passage a few months ago, I argued that the only way the rapture and the day of the Lord can both be surprise events is if they happen simultaneously. The church is raptured first in fulfillment of 1 Thessalonians 4, and then boom, the day of the Lord is unleashed in fulfillment of 1 Thessalonians 5. The rapture initiates the day of the Lord. They, they go together. And so as we return to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I think we have some clarity on the crisis in Thessalonica. 
through some means, a false teacher or a false prophet had spread false teaching about the future, saying that the day of the Lord had come. We're in it. It's here now. And they had mistakenly come to believe then that they were already in the middle of the tribulation. Perhaps they assumed that the persecution that they were facing was as a result of God's judgment upon them. And they were caught up in the tribulation period. And so they were besides themselves with, with fret and fear. They were disturbed in their minds thinking that the day of the Lord, that God's judgment was upon them. And now again here, I'd just like to pause for a moment for the sake of argument, assume that the post-tribulational position is correct. So assume that it's true, although I don't believe it is, but, but assume that it's true that the church must go through the tribulation period and then to be raptured at the end of the tribulation. Assume that the Thessalonians were fully anticipating, as they were taught by Paul, fully anticipating to go through the tribulation period, because we know Paul taught them extensively. And now a certain deception had come into their midst, a deception that they believed, namely the day of the Lord had come. So that was this, this teaching that got injected in their midst. The day of the Lord is now here. Now here's the key question. If the Thessalonians were committed to a post-tribulational rapture, if that was their viewpoint, then why would this have disturbed them? Why would it have been disturbing for them? Would not Paul have taught them to expect to go through the day of the Lord? I mean, surely they would have expressed a sobriety, knowing that, okay, guys, buckle down, seven years, we're going to go through it, but then, the, but then the rapture will come. But why would they be so unsettled in their minds? Why would they be so disturbed? On some level, would not there have been a hope, knowing that seven years and then Christ will be here? Seven more years, then Christ will rapture us up? You see, if you assume the post-tribulational position, and then ask yourself, what was the church so bad? Why were they so badly shaken by this lie? It becomes plain that the post-tribulational position does not work. And thus, by consequence, any theological system that requires a post-tribulational rapture should be reconsidered. What is clear is that this church fully expected to be raptured before the day of the Lord. And therefore, they were paralyzed with fear, thinking that they had missed the rapture. And because they knew that Paul taught that the Christ would come and rapture the church before the tribulation, they assumed they were spiritually deficient, which is why Paul in these chapters is so concerned about convincing them of their reality as true Christians. He reminds them again and again, you're true. We see it in you. We see you growing. So they were questioning their own faith. They're going, we missed the rapture because our faith is not real. And thus they fear that they would have to face the Lord's wrath with the rest of unbelieving mankind. And they were devastated and distraught, all because they had believed a false report about the future. And we could say their eschatology was a mess, and therefore their lives were upended. They were distraught. They were all over the place. Now, we will go on in the weeks ahead to really correct their, their erroneous belief by following what Paul taught about the day of the Lord, and next, next week, Lord willing, we'll, we'll go there. But for now, I think we should just pause and say, what do we do with this? These two verses, how, how do we understand the crisis in Thessalonica? And, and what should this teach us uh, about the future and about future things? How should this impact our lives today? Well, I believe, obviously, the Lord could use these verses in many ways in your life and in your heart. But I think there's one way that I'd like us to just think about for a moment 
And that is that I think the Lord would desire for us to have clarity about the future, to have certainty about the future. We should learn from the air of the Thessalonians here that we should not be quickly shaken from our composure with any thought or teaching that comes in about the future. We should believe that we will not go through the rapture and we should have a settled confidence about the future. Knowing that Christ will one day return for the church and rapture the church to be with him in fulfillment of John 14 when we're taken with Christ to go back to the Father's house, to the place that Christ has prepared for us there. And in fulfillment of Revelation 3.10, which says the church will be kept from the hour of testing, that hour which is to come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell upon the earth. These things ought to give us great confidence about the future. And as as the earth and as the world continues to degrade towards the great apostasy, that is promised in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, really the the apex of suffering and affliction that will come against the church, we'll be spared the worst of it. We'll be spared. We'll be taken out before things get too terrible. So some have said, well, well, that's just an escapist mentality. You're just wanting to escape from the earth. Uh, To that, I would just say, that's just a biblical mentality. It's just what the Bible teaches. He's going to rapture the church up. This, uh, this, of course, then does not mean we should abdicate our responsibility to be a pillar and support of the truth in the world. But as men proceed from bad to worse, evil men proceed from, battle, from bad to worse, our hope is fixed. Christ will come for us. First Thessalonians 4 will occur and we will be raptured up to be with the Lord. We will be spared from his wrath that will soon enough come upon the earth. And so with this in mind, let's pray and thank the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, it's our privilege to study Holy Scripture and to think about these things. We thank you for all of the future thinking that you gave a young church. And Lord, we know that you want us to wrestle with these things, to think deeply about these things. And Lord, I pray that as the Scripture of say, that as we understand the future, that you would sanctify us, that it would have a sanctifying result in our life, that as we see the coming of Christ drawing near, that we would straighten up, that we'd purify our our hearts and lives, that we'd live each day for Christ and for his glory. Lord, we know that for everything we do and everything we say, we'll give an account. It all matters. Everything matters. Lord, we thank you for the great plan that you have revealed from before the foundation of the world that you are slowly bringing about in your time as you see fit. And we know furthermore that in your patience, as we wait for the return of Christ, that you are waiting for people to come to faith and repentance in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray you'd help us to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to share with our friends and neighbors and anyone who will listen what Jesus has done for us. Burden us with this great task that you've given to us. Help us to love the world around us to the point that we would share Christ with them. Would we be Would we have a sense of mercy and pity in our hearts for those who do not go Christ? And would we be so willing to share Christ with them? Lord, we thank you for salvation. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us your word, which clearly reveals your will to us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.